Occupy a Job on Wall Street is an autobiographical novel about New York City and the aughts, centering around a protagonist who is mentored by three sociopaths. Season 3 Preview A Very Wall Street Affair If the words lavish dwarf entertainment mean anything to you, it's probably because of the movie Wolf of Wall Street, where Leonardo DiCaprio tosses a midget around. And, after all, they are built to be thrown. But for insiders, it actually refers to a party that Jeffries threw in March 2003 that ended up ruining the whole business for all of us. I'll use a single real name, Tom Bruderman, in this episode because he is part of the public record, but also because he was a picture of decorum compared to the rest of the traders involved. This is borne out by the fact that the SEC eventually settled with him in fidelity without any admission of guilt. Don't scoff. This is no small thing. The SEC has Japanese-level conviction rates. The other reason I'm confident that Tom had little or nothing to hide is that just wasn't how the business worked back then. People may have this idea that clients were constantly indulging in some sort of wild bacchanal outside of market hours, but most buy-side traders weren't seeing a fraction of the depravity that was going on. In part, this was because our reputations were at risk and we didn't want a big-mouth sales trader to have any blackmail over us. But more obviously, the sales teams were keeping all the stickier stuff for themselves. And back then, these people were madmen. I also understand something about the whole incident that no one else does. I know the reason the government dropped much of the case. But let's put a pin in that for now. Tom's bachelor party was actually attended by two different crews. Let's call them the A-team and the B-team. The Wall Street Journal reported the A-team flew some Boston traders down to New York to pick up a bunch of hookers, then took off to Miami to party all weekend. A lot of that journal article made no sense. For a start, who flies hookers to Miami? Also, the journal's only direct quote in the article is from the proprietor of shortdwarf.com. No offense to the four-foot-two Danny Black, but I suspect he had a limited view of what was really going on. In any case, this podcast is about the B-team. If you were on the B-team, you weren't on the official invite, you flew commercial rather than PJ or private jet, and you paid for your own hotel room. But once you committed to that, everything else was taken care of. My understanding was the B-team was made up of some sales traders and the other half were buy-side guys. The salespeople were some Lazard traders and a position trader from Cowan we'll call the lifeguard. On the client side, there were four guys. At the time, we all assumed they were other hedge fund traders. Let's call them by their nicknames, which were Dundee, Hammer, Gold, and FBI Bob. Dundee ended up sharing a hotel room with Gold. He had flown in late and found Gold already bouncing off the walls. Neither of them were invited to the A-team's Friday dinner, and no one goes out until 11 p.m. in Miami, so the two decided to kill some time drinking in their room at the Delano. After getting to know each other a bit, Dundee is making some calls, rounding up a circus, while Gold is outside on the balcony. Gold suddenly yells out, Hey, Dundee, get out here! Quick! Quick! Dundee wanders out and sees Gold leaning over the balcony. He's eating a handful of fried shrimp with one hand and masturbating furiously with the other. Dundee takes in the background and there's a massive Japanese wedding in the courtyard, just three floors below them. Gold leans back, ejaculates into the air over them and yells out, This is for Pearl Harbor! He then turns around, tucks himself back into his pants, looks at Dundee's shocked face and says, What? I always feel better starting the night off a load down. Besides, I'm not going to let any Florida hookers get the easy nut. Those girls are going to have to work for it. 
Dundee suddenly realizes this is not going to be a normal weekend in Miami. FBI Bob, Hammer, and the lifeguard end up sharing a suite upstairs. The lifeguard is your all-purpose Wall Street fix-it guy. He's a good person to bring on trips because not only can he take the traders out surfing, but he's the first one to open up a bar tab, make peace with the people the clients just trolled at the bar. He'll drop a 50 to the doorman to stop a member of the crew getting flattened. Basically, whatever needs to be triaged. If there's a problem, you turn around to find the lifeguard is already on location solving it. Hammer is your basic hedge fund trader. Duke football team, super aggressive, and equally entitled. Born on third with a silver spoon in his mouth and thinks he hit a triple with it. FBI Bob is a quiet personal guy and just seemed happy to be out of New York. What happened to these guys on the first night is lost to middle-aged memory, but the next morning both the A and B teams meet by the Delano pool. The A team have either just dropped ecstasy tabs or they're still firing on all cylinders from the night before because the lifeguard is already in the water spinning their lilos around in circles while they open the first beers of the day and make excited whistling sounds at the girls sitting around in deck chairs. One of the women is a huge black chick wearing a purple bikini. The only thing the bikini leaves to the imagination is what might be hidden under her rolls of fat. She's clearly a hooker, and two of the Jeffries guys are soon in negotiations on what it'd cost for a gangbang. This chick would do anything to anyone for a dollar, but they keep moving their markets around, unable to settle on a price, until it becomes clear the brokers are just having a bit of fun and messing with her. She screams at the top of her voice, G-Rome! A second later, an enormous man wearing a purple suit appears out of one of the cabanas at the other end of the pool. He takes one look at the scene, fixes the Jeffries traders with a death stare, and then wades into the water. He's like a container ship plying its way through the Delano revelers, leaving startled punters in his wake. The Jeffries guys are dead men. They don't even know it yet. As the giant approaches, FBI Bob quickly gets up from his chair and taps him on the shoulder as he wades past. The monster stops in his tracks, and there's a conversation that no one can hear, despite all eyes being on the odd scene. Assertive but not arrogant, FBI Bob points to a couple of other seedy-looking women sitting around the pool and then gives an almost imperceptible flick of his thumb toward the exit. A minute later, the pimp is pulling himself out of the water and his hookers out of the hotel. As weird and unexplained as this little scene was, the entire situation is over and mostly forgotten in minutes. FBI Bob should be the hero of the trip, but everyone instantly goes back to ignoring him. In part, this is because he was otherwise a fairly nondescript character, but also in Miami back then, it was super weird if something wasn't going horribly wrong all the time. And equally so, perhaps Florida is just somewhere people live when they don't want to think very hard about it. In any case, an hour later, people are getting out of the pool and everyone in a hundred foot radius is getting invited to a party on a boat in the harbor. The A-team are whisked away in cars with some of the girls they were talking to still wearing bikinis while the B-team set off in drips and drabs. Our four hedge fund protagonists, Dundee, Gold, FBI Bob, and The Hammer, find themselves together again getting on a luxury yacht. There's the usual amount of partying going on until The Hammer points out Dennis Koslovsky sitting down, drinking white wine, and talking to a dwarf. Now, this was 16 years ago, so you'd be forgiven if that name doesn't mean much to you. 
But forget what you think you saw on Instagram recently, because Dennis Koslovsky was the poster child for corporate excess back then. He was the CEO of a company called Tyco, literally abused every corporate prerogative on the books, and then invented new ones just so he could abuse those. Most famously, his company spent a million dollars on a party for his wife in Sardinia, which featured an ice sculpture of Michelangelo's David urinating Stolichnia vodka and a private concert by Jimmy Buffett. This shareholder meeting became known as the Tycho Roman Orgy. Koslovsky is in the middle of a Fed case that will send him to jail for six years, and he's partying with dwarves and bikini-clad women on a luxury yacht in Miami? Hammer thinks this is awesome. The ball's on this guy. FBI Bob takes one look at Dennis Koslovsky and turns white. This is a guy who just faced down a 400-pound monster wading through a pool in a full purple suit, and yet... He's suddenly terrified. As always, the lifeguard is at hand, sees FBI Bob needs to get out of there, and flags down some jet skis that are dropping off waitstaff to the crew. The lot of them get picked up and are eventually dropped off at a Trump beachfront property where there's the usual lack of security to interfere with them, and they go their separate ways. That's the last known interaction between the two trading teams in Miami. The rest of the weekend is lost in the fog. After all, it's Florida. The taxes are too low, the weather is too good, the girls are too hot. Weekends just blend into each other. Sunday rolls around and everyone goes back to New York, where at least bad weather develops character, to some extent. A few years later, the lifeguard is summoned by the Security and Exchange Commission for an interview. He's not particularly concerned by this, in part because he always conducted himself with discretion, but in any case, had left the trading business to become a real estate agent selling overpriced Greenwich properties to hedge fund executives. Now, as we detailed in Episode 7, back then the SEC were, for the most part, morons. So the lifeguard could decide to talk rings around them or just decline to recall what he saw that weekend. But he plays his card straight and sits down and tells the whole story as we just detailed here. Afterwards, he's sitting in the interview room, and the SEC guys come back in with two serious-looking men wearing dark suits and badges from some unidentified government agency. You see, by 2006, Tom Bruderman's bachelor party is no longer seen as an isolated incident. Warnings from regulators, known as Wells Notices, are flying all over the place. The NASD is looking into what the brokers described on email as creative T&D. The feds want to know what the Fidelity CEO got up to at the Summer Olympics, how many other luxury yachts Cowan booked, which traders at Lazard were spending the most money on hookers and drugs, and who on the buy side was taking private jets to Wimbledon and the Super Bowl. You'd think the feds would be excited. They're on the cusp of sticking it to their hated counterparts on Wall Street, guys who make ten times what they do and never pass up a chance to disparage the public sector. But instead, the feds in this room look very, very worried. They look like men who have just realized hundreds of their cases and tens of thousands of man-hours are about to go up in smoke. The taller of the two feds sits down opposite the lifeguard, leans forward and says, Bob, huh? Where did you say that guy worked again? Season 3 of Occupy a Job on Wall Street will resume soon. Please subscribe to listen.